I would much rather be a sheep for God than a lion for God. We're kind of jumping ahead in the sermon, but that's cool. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's at the end. All right, yeah, good conclusion. No. So, so what what ails us? Last week, certainly Nahum means comfort, comfort for God's people, and we see that God is sovereignly in control. We saw last week that He's great in power control over nature, control over all of creation, and certainly control over sin and, and death, ultimately. And so I wonder in this moment, like we have this beautiful, bright, you know, sun, we've got everything going on, it's nice, there's a cool little breeze, but you know, on the west coast, there's fires. On the east coast, there's a, there's a hurricane about to blast New York right now, lots of, you know, things going on there. You know, Haiti had an earthquake, you know, it's like... Is God in control of those things? That's the thing we always have to ask ourselves, right? And so and then we look to Afghanistan, or maybe we, we talk about COVID first, right? Like, it's here. What are, you, what are we doing with it? Is God sovereign over that? Is he in control over that? You know, Afghanistan says we ended a 20-year war, but how long until the next war? It kind of reminds me of Nineveh and Assyria a little bit. Like, yeah, they repented. Yeah, things changed, but we're going to go back to our old ways pretty quick. No problem whatsoever. And so in, in all of these things, certainly the, the questions to be asking ourselves is, is certainly, is God in control over this? And then also the, the other important question to ask, um, is God working through this? And the reality is, is of course God's working through this. And the series title for today is, is Simple Truths About a God at War with Sin. And I don't know, I'm not God, I don't pretend to be, but all these things I just mentioned, how is God using them to bring people back to him? That, that's my question. And, and you can see that in some of them. And it's not because of fear or anything like that. It's, it's out of love. It's out of jealousy, if you will. Because we've, we've gone so far astray, and especially, you know, as a people, individually, or if we look collectively, it seems we've gone really, really, really far away from God in all of this. So we see all those current events, and you see the left, the right, the up, the down, the, the sideways, the, the loop, and it's God at work. There's no denying it. He's still at work today, and he's always going to be at work because there's always sin, and God is always at war against sin. So... Let's pray. Let's get started in Nahum chapter 2. So, dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you that certainly you have overcome sin and you have overcome death. But it's still very much real and very much alive around us until heaven and earth melt away and there's a new heaven and a new earth and we'll be with you someday. And you will be our light and there'll be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. Oh, we rejoice for that day. But until that day, how joyous it is to be able to see you. And so, Lord, as we approach your word today, tune our hearts and our minds to well, allow us to see you clearly, your character, your traits, your goodness, and your kindness, even in the midst of war and strife, that you are still good. And in you, that like God, you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. And so we appreciate that. We're thankful for that. And hopefully, we're all developing hearts of gratitude for that ways of the world certainly are crushing, but Lord, you are refreshing in the midst of the crushing. And so as much as we come to worship this morning, I hope that you can continue to, to build in our hearts and our minds this love of gratitude to continue to worship throughout the 
us. It's in your name, Jesus, we will forever pray. Amen. All right. Name chapter 2. Simple truth about a God at war with sin. So the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers and plundered have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. It's getting hot in here. Jeez. All right, not really. <laughs> so let's break it down, most definitely. We know that God's at war at sin. We know that God is good, and in him is no darkness at all, of course. And certainly in this, this is an oracle, as we started from last week. It's a premonition. This book was taken between 663 B.C. from the fall of Thebes, which we'll find out next week, or 612 B.C., which is when Assyria fell. So it's somewhere in between that, probably way closer to 612, because that's when the fall of Assyria happened. But nonetheless, in all of this, you can see that God is at work. I'm sorry, I'm totally distracted this morning. But the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. We need to remember and understand certainly that, that God is in control as last week, but also remember that God, his wrath is not like a, a character trait, it's a secondary trait in, in that sense. Like yes, it's certainly a part of his character and who he is, but it is because of his jealousy. And remember we talked briefly, or not briefly, pretty extensively about it last week. This jealousy is God's intense devotion and loyalty to those who are his own. Okay? And God does this because of his jealousy for his own people that are oppressed at this time. So Nineveh, a very oppressive culture, very oppressive you know, city, very oppressive to the rest of the world. And we're going to see a lot more of that next week because they're going to be like, and God's going to say, you know, to, to Nineveh in a roundabout way, like, like, who can I even ask to comfort you? Who can I even care? Or, or who can show that they even care that you're being destroyed? 
in the first place. Like, the nations are clapping their hands. So Assyria is pretty ugly as far as it goes. And we've talked briefly over it as we've gone through Jonah as well. And so this part, I want you to know that the Lord certainly keeps his promises. Like, this is a big deal throughout all of Scripture is God keeping his covenants, God keeping his promises for his people. And so this very first line is actually very, very, very interesting because the scatterer actually technically kind of comes from, from Jeremiah chapter 51 in a sense. And what's interesting about Jeremiah chapter 51 is it describes the fall of Babylon. Now, as it describes the fall of Babylon, God talks a little bit about them, uh, Babylon in general, and he says, You are my hammer and weapon of war. With you I break nations into pieces. With you I destroy kingdoms. And I showed, and we talked about the sovereignty over nature as well as the sovereignty over other nations. Like, if you want to go down the list, we've got Assyria here who gets taken over by Babylon. Then Babylon gets destroyed by Persia. Persia ends up getting destroyed by the Greeks. Then the Greeks end up getting destroyed by the Romans. And then we can just keep going on like that. But again, God is working through all of these because of the wickedness of superpowers and super nations in the end. You know, they continue to go their own way. They continue to go away from God. And we might very well find ourselves to be in a similar position today in that way. But the scatterer and Jeremiah, I want you to know what else is really, really, really interesting about this. I told you 612 is when Assyria falls, okay? So in 612 BC, as Assyria is falling, Jeremiah is prophesying against Israel. <laughs> like Israel's finally getting good news, like, oh, Assyria's gone. But then God is having Jeremiah, uh, you know, prophecy to them about their future you know, being overcome by Babylon too, just the same. And it's like, man, when does this ever stop? When, does, when do we ever learn from our past mistakes or anything like that? But all in all, here's what we need to see and here's what we need to understand. For the Lord is restoring just going to stop there. We can talk about the majesty of, of Jacob, meaning the southern kingdom of Judah and the two tribes that are there. We could talk about Israel and the ten tribes that are up there, but this is what God is doing. He is restoring. And we talk about reconciliation, you know, in this, being restored to a right and real relationship. And that is first and foremost what our Lord Jesus has done, is reconciled a sinner back to a holy God that we might have a right and real relationship with our Creator. Because we've been cut off because of sin, because we are dealing with a God who is at war with sin. He's not against you personally, he's against your sin. So, so remember that and keep that in mind in this. And so restoring, changing, turning back to excellence, his own people. And we see that. But it's this next verse that really, really strikes home for me in a sense, because I think we can almost allegorize it in a sense to be like, you know what, this is what's wrong with the entire world. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. I think that's what's wrong with about every one of us, in a sense. That we indeed have had and dealt with a lot of drama and nonsense you know, in the world. And it's changed us. And not necessarily in a good or a positive light. So, keeping with the text though, and keeping with the series, Isaiah talks about this too, because you know, all these little minor prophets and major prophets and everybody kind of working together. Isaiah was 800s 
BC, roughly, or early 800s BC. Now we're dealing with the mid-600s. When we had Jonah, we were dealing with the 700s BC. But this Isaiah reference of Israel to being God's own vineyard. And if we were still doing uh, you know, scripture readings right now, this would totally be one of them. I just want to read this for you. The vineyard of the Lord destroyed. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine bed in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall be grown up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Again, it's so repetitive, the, the same concepts of people turning away from God in, in their lives. Israel was notorious for this. Praise the Lord that he continues to pursue us, even though we don't you know, pursue him or want to be pursued. And that is the good news of the gospel because God is the one who pursues. And if it was based on our worth and our merit, there would be nobody that could stand in his way or even in his presence. And so what's wrong with the world is that we've all been broken. We've all been battered. We've all been, you know, dealing with different trials and tribulations and struggles in life. We have been plundered and our branches have been ruined. Recently, I, I, my wife for my birthday planted a butterfly garden in, in our house and it's, it's grown amazingly over the last three months. It's so beautiful. I'm starting to get little butterflies and if you know my story, I'm like a little kid. Like, it's so exciting and just uh, you know, to see. Like, like you see ecosystem upon ecosystem upon ecosystem. And so here, here are these plants that we just planted, okay? You know, you can even go back to Jonah if you want to think about the plant and the shade that he's done. So here are these plants that have been planted. Aside from giving them water, you know, maybe love and attention, they, they continue to grow, right? And so as the gardener, and we can, you know, again, jump to John 15 too, just the same to see God at work in this because he's, you know, if we are the vine, he's the vine dresser. These plants, you know, they can grow this way, they can grow that way. Sometimes they have to be pruned. Right? Sometimes plants have to be pruned. You know, you don't want them going off this way. You don't want them going that way. You don't want another tree starting over there. So you've got to prune it. You've got to change it. And that's exactly what essentially happens to our lives in sanctification. Because as much as God's restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel, if we bring it to present day, God is restoring us to first and foremost, that right and real relationship with him, but also into the, the human being that God originally created us to be. You know, there, there certainly shouldn't be near the amount of, you know, hate and strife and things that we deal with, but this is a broken world, and, it, and we are dealing with a God that's at war with sin, 
And so we're going to get caught up in that mess because this is a sinful, broken world. But God is restoring us. He is changing us. And we look at this as the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We define it as sanctification, which is being made holy, which is being set apart from the rest of the world. I'll, I'll never forget this, and it's one of my favorite things that I've ever heard, is, is, is an atheist friend of mine said, you know what, I'll give you guys credit for this, that those who are mature in Christ are the most calm and confident people I've ever met in my life. Amen? Like, I, I think hopefully we've all seen that in our lives, that regardless of how the storm comes, you know, or when the storm comes, or whether God's for us or against us in this storm, that's all still part of our growth. That's all still part of our change. We're still growing into Christ's likeness, and you can see that. And that's a promise of God that we can keep. He is changing you. He is sanctifying you. You are being made holy in all of this. So God is at war with sin, and he keeps his promises. So moving on to the next, because this is, again, it's poetry. So I'm going to read this for you, and I just want you to see the two different types of people, because while I say people are either with God or against God, like there's so much more that needs to go into that. And, and, and this is just kind of a, I feel like, kind of a blanket you know, title. But verse 3. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. Just stop there. This is outside the city walls. Think about it this way. Again, a visualized picture of a war that's about to go on. This is going outside the war. This is outside the walls, if you will. And so you see this. There's a certain amount of confidence there. They come with flashing metals. They're mustered. The spears are brandished. They're ready. They're prepared. Okay? Now, let's look what inside the walls look like. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the square. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Chaos. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. No clue whatsoever. Then look in this next verse. And I think this verse we can definitely split apart a little more. But this is the tragedy right here, right? And, and especially the fall of a kingdom. He remembers his officers. Again, like there's no, like they're not there. There's no instruction. Like the officers are left to do their own you know, free will or whatnot in that sense, and, and they don't know what's going on or, or how things are going in this. Then this next part, they stumble as they go, they hasten to the wall. I think this can be said of both parties, if you will, and I'll explain more in a minute. Certainly inside, as the chariots are rushing to and fro, and as, you know, the, the carts and the chariots are bouncing up and down and, and giving sparks that gleam like torches and dart like lightning, there's a lot of, you know, disorganization. There's confusion. There's, there's, uh, they're certainly upset. And so they stumble as they go. And they're going to the wall because there's inside the wall and then there's outside the wall. And you want to, when you're inside the wall, you want to keep the people from the outside and coming inside. Very simple. And so they hasten to the wall from the inside. Now, from the outside, I can see that they would stumble as they go and they hasten to the wall because the siege tower's up. I'm sure you've probably all seen old movies with the old big siege towers. Even if you just think of an old battering ram, like how many people does that take 
to go. And certainly those are heavy pieces of equipment if you're going to tear it on a wall. So I could see them stumbling too, in a sense, because it's just heavy and you don't have to carry. But they hasten to the wall, and then from the outside, the siege tower's up. So now you've got it. Now you've got the chaos on the inside, and you've got the organization on the outside. And I want to see, again, organized and disorganized, chaos or control. And that, I find, like what I was just saying about those that are confident in, in Christ, that's the effects of sin or the Holy Spirit. That's the effects of those that are in Christ or those who are not in Christ. Uh, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of disorganization out there. There's a lot of self out there right now. And, and when you stand alone, you see that. He remembers his officers. They weren't unified as a front inside you know, the walls of the castle by any stretch of the imagination. There's just disorganization. And so nobody knows what they're doing. So how do they do it? And will they do it well? No, they're not going to do it well. You can see that they won't do it well. And we know what happens to Nineveh in the end as Assyria is gone. So look at this point title. People are either with God or against God. So Babylon is not God's chosen people, right? Israel is God's chosen people. That's his holy nation. He works with Babylon just the same as he works with Assyria. So we may have heard it said, and this is where maybe I owe an apology because I've never you know, fully explained it in, in its proper detail, but maybe you've heard, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the truth of the matter is, God can be for us, and God can be against us. Why? Because he's a God at war with sin. So where are you at in your walk right now? Is he going to be with you, or is he going to be against you? He's always going to be with you. Like, let's be real. Like, once you're saved in Christ, like, I don't ever want to lose that for anyone, especially as we talk about this. But you have to realize, too, that if we're going down a path of sin, God's going to be ultimately against us in that, and, and we're going to get burned some way or another, and that's going to turn us back to him. It's a method and a way. God is in control over everything. He's in control of nature, control of people. He's sovereign over all of these things. And so God can be with you, and God certainly can be against you because he is at war with sin. And so ultimately, we always have to be like, well, whose side are we on? <laughs> the side of self or the side of selfless? Let's put it that way, rather than being like on God's side or not. So in this point, and as you see this, and, and certainly it's a simple truth that God is at war with sin, and that people are either with him or against him. But the reality is, is that God is always going to be for us. And that the truth will set you free, ultimately, in, in all of this. And in, in who God is and what he's done for us. So, moving on to the next point here. God naturally opposes the proud. Again, kind of punny, if you will. Because naturally, I'm talking about nature. And especially in this moment, when you see how God... They used Babylon there, right? And you see that, you know, there's a certain amount of calm and peace for those that are, you know, with God in this. Because he doesn't, God doesn't name the people. He doesn't name any of the, the you know, the people. He doesn't really name Babylon, barely names Nineveh or Assyria. But in the end, he says, I am against you. And ultimately, it's just about him in this. And so we see that. And God naturally opposing the crowd, he's still using 
nature as well as human beings and everything that's within his power to bring you know an end to the wickedness and that's all because of the love and the jealousy again so it's it's certainly an interesting concept to grasp and it certainly opens up the mind in a different way I would say but the river gates are open the palace melts away this as well and this is where kind of the punny comes from naturally if you go back to the first chapter we, he talks about the hills melting the hills melting the mountains breaking things like that but in here you have a palace that melts away and so what's neat and interesting about Nineveh and, and what you know, historians have started, studied about it and, and the Tigris River being around it is that they had built a very intricate type of moat system that went around it. And that's exactly what this is talking about here. And, and even when he says he's going to bring a pool to destroy Nineveh, he was certainly talking about people in the first chapter. But in this second chapter, you see chaos without control and you see the river gates being opened so that Babylon can come into Nineveh easy, super easy. And it's like, well, how did this happen? Like, like they have levees and pulleys, water comes in, water goes out, everything like that. We don't know for sure. It doesn't describe it for sure, but you know this was part of God's plan in this. He's talked about it in the first chapter, and now you're getting the vision of the execution of nature and of it being used in the second chapter here. And so the river gates are open, the palace melts away. It's also recorded that, uh, and, and maybe, this is, maybe this is why it says melts, talking about fire, but it's also recorded that once Babylon had breached the walls of Nineveh, then the king at that time burned the palace and everyone who was in it at that time. And so maybe it's that, maybe it's not. And so it kind of flows a little bit when you see verse 7 there, kind of hard. But Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Like, have you ever seen an above-ground pool where one side gets knocked out, the other side gets knocked out, and all the water comes rushing out, everything like that? That's a mad, chaotic scene. And honestly, you can kind of see that in Afghanistan right now. Like, people are getting out. Like, it's just, okay. Things are changing, we're, we're moving on. And, and so those that were able to survive, because God didn't say that he wiped everyone out, but he's certainly the end of the wickedness had to happen. It's had to happen sooner or later, most definitely. And so verse 8 and 9, Nineveh is like a pool whose water runs away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. And then they talk about silver, they talk about gold, no end of the treasure and the wealth of all precious things. Gosh. Very simply, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Nineveh had gotten too big for their britches. They have, you know, in, in all of this, they've abused all of the countries around them. They've gone, they've stolen, they've captured slaves. Like anything that was of worth or anything to any of the surrounding nations that were around Nineveh at the time, they have a piece of. And in this, and I want to show you this too, because it really caused me a lot to think, especially seeing the, you know, the pride and, and witnessing pride today just the same as it was yesterday. Like People say, oh, the Bible's so irrelevant, it's 2,000 years old, but sin is the same. It's just packaged a little differently. How you do it's a little differently, but you still adulterize, you still murder, still lie, you know, still have idols. We always have idols, and we'll always have idols above God, it seems. So, sad truth of it, but 
starting in chapter 1, verse 10, just to see what, what Nineveh was like, the, the negative aspects of it, because again, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble fully dried. They're kind of old, they're tired, their ways are old, their ways are tired, drunkards as they drink, you know, pleasant, like doing this every day, like it's a normal thing, like it's acceptance, like it's just become a routine with them, that they're powerful, everyone else sucks, and it's just junk in comparison to them, like it's just getting old. And then you see in verse 12 of chapter 1 as well, that uh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. It's a big nation, many allies, many people. Nineveh, back when we were reading in Jonah, was roughly 120,000 people. That's what God said, with many cattle, as, as he put it. And then now, you know, Assyria, uh, or Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. It wasn't in Jonah's time, but it has grown. So now it's even more people, even more pride, even more arrogance, even more uh, of everything as they've continued, because this is like the 600s. So you've got a 150-year swing there where a lot can happen in all of this. So you see that in verse 12. Then we go, you see chapter 2, 8, and 9 here, what I just said and what they're talking about. Uh, like a pool, like it's just it's full of things. There's silver, there's gold, no end of the treasure or wealth of all the precious things. And then I'll give you a preview for next week, chapter 3 here. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, and no end to their prey. Again, kind of, kind of arrogance, and you see the lies, and you see the plunder, and you see everything of that. Then you go to verse 7 in this, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So you see that they're tyrannical. You see that they don't have a lot of like other nations that are friends. They might have allies, but that's because of like fear rather than friendship. There's a big difference. It's kind of like how Nineveh came to God in the first time out of fear, not out of friendship, not out of fellowship. And so makes you wonder about repentance a little bit too, like those guys that are turn and burn on street corners. Like, is that really effective? And the odds are no. It's not at all. And then uh, verse 12 of chapter 3 as well. Keep going. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the ear. They're bursting. You know, everything is just bursting. They've got an abundance of everything. And then you keep going down through 16 through 19, kind of the end of it. There's merchants there who are like locusts, princes, scribes shepherds, nobles, the king, scattered. There's so much that goes on because it's the big capital city. Lots of people there, lots going on, and lots of abuse, whether it be you know political or uh, cultural or commercial or uh, tons of different things. It is a big city, and they've gotten too big for the britches and again. And so we see that, and God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, this is their own downfall. It's their own doing, because they were, were too full of themselves, and they imposed way too much on other people and took from way too other people. There is an abundance of everything in the world, but there's also sin, which leads to greed, which leads to corruption, which leads to an, an, a skew proportionate between everybody. Like, there is enough for everybody, and no, you know, we're not talking about every socialistic thing, but just the facts that it is out there, and, and certainly 
like God has given enough for his people, but there are oppressors who, who take it because enough just isn't enough. And it's never going to be enough. And it's always going to continue to be that way. And we see that. And we see that in Nineveh. We see that in Nahum. We've seen that in many other powers, superpowers, if you will, throughout history, that this is how they operate, and that's their downfall, too. Because you, you make a lot more enemies than you do friends in that regard. Because they're thinking about self rather than neighbor. And that's, that's the tragedy of life in, in itself, if you ask me. And that's how branches get destroyed and broken and trampled and everything else because of that type of lifestyle. So you see that, and God opposes that, and he opposes the proud. And, and certainly, he's at war with sin, because that's what that pride is. This is all sin. Like, did Nineveh need all of these things? No. They had an over-alarming abundance. And now, like a pool, all of that abundance is being spread out all over, back to all the other different nations from back in the day, now that, now that they're going to be destroyed. And so you see verse 10 there, desolate, desolation, ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish, faces grow pale. That's just the result of sin. It's, it's fear. Their injustices that they've done to others and felt like that was okay, that it was okay that they did that. Well, now you reap what you sow. And now they're reaping what they sow. And then, you know, as much as their prey and their victims had anguish and paleness in their faces and everything else, now it's their turn in regard to this. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. So as much frustration and, you know, and anger as we might have, God is the one who ultimately does it and takes care of it on our behalf. Their injustices to others have now become theirs. It's just sad. It's just a very sad little, little tale and a sad little story here. But to see God work in this and to give comfort that God certainly is against sin and he's against the wrongs in the world. And that if he is for us, hopefully he won't be against us just the same. And we can walk in his grace and we can walk in his truth. So getting to that very last point though, the lions and the lamb. And this is, this is certainly the, the, the scariest part and the most eye-opening part. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where the cubs were, with none to disturb? The lions tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey, and his dens with torn flesh. So, describing the people with abundance. That, that's really what those two verses are saying. There, there naturally is a, you know, a, a similarity between what Nineveh was doing at that time, and, and we can go into graphic detail, but I, I don't think we need to go into graphic detail of some of the things that they would do. But they took from others. We know that. They put other people into slavery. They, you know, all of these things. This is exactly what those verses are saying. And they were lions about it, right? Like, they were in charge. They were pretending that they were in charge. Until they met the Lion of Judah. <laughs> Let's be real. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, while we do specifically talk about Jesus being the Lion of Judah, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in the Trinity as the triune God, most definitely. So I'm just loosely, you know, attributing to that because... God is the ultimate lion. He can be the ultimate devourer. He's the ultimate savior. He's the ultimate caretaker. He's the ultimate protector. He's the ultimate provider. Need I go on? <laughs> he, he continues to work within all these aspects. And so, 
Here's what he's done, though, and you see this coming in the rest of it. I will burn your chariots in smoke. Now, the chariots in smoke, I think this can be talking about trade, how there will be no more trade for Nineveh. We could talk about this being transportation. We can, you know, no more chariots, no more transportation. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to do anything. We could look at this from a military perspective, too, just the same, that... Well, the chariots will be in smoke. There will not be any more military because chariots typically used in, in, in military time, and especially as you saw from the second point with, with Cypress spears brandished and charging and everything else that goes on with that. So it could be a multitude of those things, but God's cutting that off. Okay, and now here's the next thing. Uh, and the sword shall devour your young lions. That's a generational thing. Young lions in reference to children. Uh, there will not be more future generations. Like, there will be some that are alive in this moment, and, and certainly some that have been saved. Going back to Jonah's time, you know, moving forward. And, and again, if you remember our conversation last week, and especially going through Isaiah, there are a remnant of every single nation that's out there. God has created a people for his own possession. And, and while I didn't say it last week, like, if you're even a slight bit racist, well, that's going to clearly die before you go to heaven because it's multicultural, multi-ethnic, people from every nation, every, every everything up, up in heaven, and God has saved those people. So those people that do survive Nineveh at this time, but how many are lost in this time too? And how many? Like, God is, okay, your wickedness, it's gone generation to generation to generation to generation. And, and that's exactly like if we go back to that Exodus chapter 34 where God has that golden calf moment with them and says, Lord, pass before them. You know, God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, visiting iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So generational. And that's exactly what God has done in this. And so... I will cut off your prey from the earth. That very well could mean, too, that uh, there's no longer ways that you're going to be able to take from other people in this moment. And then lastly, the voice of the messengers. He's going to make them culturally insignificant. They're not going to be this amazing nation that they were anymore. There's going to be a different one. Babylon's taking their spot now. Taking the, taking the hot seat, if you will. But God used Assyria. God used Babylon. God's used Israel. God's used all of these nations to bring other people to him again. And so, praise the Lord that even though God says the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard, that God sent a messenger. God sent John the Baptist to, to pave the way. God sent these prophets in all of these times to, to hear, to bring the coming of the Messiah, if you will. So, God's message and God's voice can still be heard just the same. And even though Nineveh is falling in this capacity, because God is at war with sin, and because he's done all of these things, like, he sent his son to take the wrath that we deserve, that Nineveh is ultimately getting at this moment in time. So, we're talking about the past, but we're also talking about the future and the present. God has always worked within the capacity of faith and repentance. Repentance meaning to turn, and then faith meaning to believe in, in that regard. And that's exactly what we saw, you know, 150 years earlier in Jonah, 
but that's not what we get 150 years later from a wicked nation that continues to thrive and strive for its wickedness. And so while this story against Nineveh is of God's sovereignty throughout history, and that provides a sense of, of comfort for his people, if you will, that his people are oppressed, the gospel message here is that the ultimate battle against sin has been won. Like, we see this battle against Nineveh, it's a battle against sin. It wasn't that Assyria was so, so terrible, but it was the sin of the people. And then it became a national type of sin, which is super dangerous, of course, as Israel knows. <laughs> Just ask any of those, you know, Old Testament Israelites in any of this. And so God never loses a battle. And there is, indeed, a victory in Jesus. And so we see that land. And we see that Jesus is that, that spotless lamb. And we see that lion. And we see all around us people trying to be lions and, and, and fighting for things that, that Jesus, when he came to earth, never fought for. Remember, Israel wanted is, like their Messiah to be a like national warrior, in a sense. And they wanted him to take over all the other nations so that Israel could stand as the top nation. But that's not what he came to do. That's not what he came to fight about. He came to defeat sin and death, not nations, not, not governmental things, not rights. It was never about rights. Jesus gave up his rights for us in all of this. He laid down, it while, while being fully God, he was still fully man. And he didn't lord his lordship over anybody. In fact, he came to serve. And then he was obedient, obedient to God, even to the point of death on the cross. And so the Lord keeps his promises. And in this Old Testament, and as you see this, the Old Testament is all about the, the promised forecoming of this Messiah, this great king for Israel. And that great king for Israel, they shall call his name Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do, and that's exactly what Jesus did. God keeps his promises. He is at war with sin. And when you see all the drama and all the nonsense around you in this world, don't be surprised as if some strange thing was happening. No, we have a God who is at war with sin. These are natural occurrences, as much as breathing is a natural occurrence. Because he loves and it's because of his jealous love and his steadfast love and his covenantal commitment that you see this wrath sometimes. Because we know sin's not right. And ultimately, we know that we're not right. But praise be to God that he can still love us, that he can still care about us, that he sent that messenger, that he sent Jesus to be that perfect, spotless, blemishless lamb that could atone for our sins so that someday, we can be restored like how he started this. He's restoring the fortune. He is restoring your life. And you will be with him for eternity. You're with him now, and you'll be with him for eternity. Praise the Lord. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you for you know the foundation of your truth. As hard as it is to swallow sometimes, Lord, I just I thank you that you don't sugarcoat things. You don't try to say it, but BS us, if you will. You don't, you don't cover things up. You don't, you don't, you're just you in, in all your glory. 
And so, Lord, as, as much as we try to be something that we're not, I thank you that you're you. I thank you that you continue to pursue us. I thank you that you continue to enlighten us. I thank you that you bless us with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you've blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And I just really thank you that you've shown us the light. You've shown us how this world truly works for what it is who it is, but more so thank you, Lord, for showing us who you are. Because without knowing who you are, then we would all still be just as hopeless as we were before we knew you. And that's a scary place to be, especially now. When you look around the world, there is a lot of hopelessness, and it makes sense, but Lord, you have given us hope. You have given us confident assurance in, in Christ. And it's the faith that we have in you that is a blessing from you, that carries us every day. It's the reason why we get up in the morning. So Lord, I just hope that you use us well, and I know that you love us. Teach us that every morning when we wake up. And then, Lord, I'm excited that we'll be with you someday. It's in your name we will forever pray. Amen.